0: To subdue or sustain spirituality and the natural world by Katie Tenholzen. Most spiritual traditions have a creation story about how the earth and everything in it, including plants, animals, and humans, were formed by a powerful force, whether that is believed to be a great spirit, god, and or goddesses, an animal, or a cosmic vibration. The relationship between humans and the rest of the natural world plays out differently across belief systems. Ancient cultures around the globe saw close ties between humans and nature. Their sustenance came from the earth and the living things in it. The spirits of the land were worshipped for their providence many spiritual traditions believe that the universe has an underlying rational order. Humans in their natural state may have been seen as disconnected or out of balance with this order. Now, There are many examples of how this disconnect is explored and or corrected in the practices of different peoples around the world. Sometimes, this is by making amends, and in other traditions, it is reflected in a different perspective on the relationship between humans and the natural world. Members of the Maori tribe traditionally offer thanks to the forest spirits before felling a tree. Then there's the Australian Aboriginal tradition that holds that the land is alive with spiritual power. And the creation was not a continuous event. It's an ongoing, ever-present, and accessible to humans through ritual practices and sacred objects. The Bagai of central India see themselves as lords of the animals hunting for their food. They avoid tilling land because they believe it's wrong to tear the body of Mother Earth. In Mahayana Buddhism, it is deemed beneficial, and sometimes even required for monks to spend an extended period of time living in the forest before reaching enlightenment. Taoists strive to live simply in harmony with nature, detached from material concerns, so as not to interrupt the Tao, which is the way, the natural flow of the universe. Now one of the five vows of Jain monks and nuns is the vow of nonviolence toward other humans as well as toward all living things, including the smallest organisms found in air and water. The creation poems in Judeo-Christian scripture tell the story of a God who created all things living on the earth, giving humans the command to quote. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's from Genesis 1, 28. This term, subdue, it's the same word used in other parts of Scripture when a nation would conquer another nation or even in the context of a man sexually assaulting a woman. Scripture also says that quote, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, end quote. A prophet says of God, quote, you have made heaven, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, end quote, from Nehemiah 9, 6. Later in scripture, Jesus calls on his followers to carry out his mission of restoration, bringing a new kingdom a new way of interacting mercifully with others and also arguably with creation. The Quran teaches that humans and nature have a relationship of reciprocity. Humans are viewed as porous like sponges also to absorb, absorb and to be impacted by all that surrounds them. Therefore, the exploitation of the earth has a negative impact on humanity. The whole earth is viewed as a mosque, suitable for prayer and a reminder of the God who created it and should be given the same respect. Thank you, Katie Tenholzen, for this content, these notes, and the questions that we're going to be interacting with on this podcast. Katie joins the Brew Theology podcast along with Janelle, myself, and our new friend, Elizabeth. Hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, go to iTunes, rate or review it. Share that online. We're at brew underscore theology on Twitter. Also Facebook and Instagram at brewtheology. Uh, some exciting news happening right now. We had a new launch actually yesterday when we recorded this episode, the Jacksonville chapter. That's right, if you live in Jacksonville, Florida, or nearby, they have a Brew Theology chapter that just launched yesterday. There's another one that's gonna be happening pretty soon in Winston-Salem. Also, if you live up in Greeley, Colorado, check that out. You can email Janelle if you're in the northwest metro area of Denver to check out that area. Also, Denver Brew Theology, we meet every Thursday night in the pubs here in Denver, Colorado. And you've got the Jersey Boys whom will be on the podcast very, very soon. Lastly, we have Eric Strickland out in Canton, Ohio, going to be launching a Brew Theology chapter there as well. If you'd like to launch a chapter, please just give me an email, ryanatbrewtheology.org or Janelle over at brewtheology.org. Thank you very much, and I will talk to you soon. Peace. All right, welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan, and uh, we're going to do Katie's topic. How are you doing, Katie? Doing great. Happy to be here. To subdue or sustain spirituality and the natural world, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the unnatural world, which world do you live in?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely the natural world.
0: Okay. So uh, we're going to introduce ourselves real quick, do a brief religious heritage background, where we are today, and then you have great fall questions, Janelle.
2: Your favorite fall food. I can
1: start. Um, I'm Katie. I did write this content that we're going to be discussing this week. And I uh, grew up in a small, pretty conservative Protestant church in a small town. Um, and really, I wouldn't say that I ever walked away from completely like shunned that faith tradition that I grew up in. Um, but I did definitely do a lot of pruning and a lot of growing, um, and have found myself to be more on the progressive side of things. Um, still really influenced by this Jesus guy and his teachings, the way that he lived his life. Um, and so that's where I find myself today. I'm a member of a local church, um, that's non-denominational and, uh, seeks to be missional in our community. Um, Yeah. Uh, my
2: favorite, favorite fall
1: food favorite fall food probably pepitas right now pumpkin seeds roasted um no salt or anything just i eat like i eat a handful or two of them every day so
3: it's kind of my awesome. go-to yeah i'm elizabeth i grew up in a fundamentalist baptist home and i have spent my adult life learning to Walk away from everything I learned and question everything, and so that's where I'm at right now.
2: Favorite fall food?
3: Everything. Pumpkin. Pumpkin bread. Pumpkin pasta with sausage. Pumpkin. Yum. Everything. Ooh, so the real pumpkin question, pumpkin question is: ravioli? Do you have you had pumpkin you, ravioli? Mm.
0: Do you actually Joe's. like pumpkin beer and pumpkin lattes? I,
3: I do like both pumpkin beer and pumpkin the, lattes, and I know uh, that may get me kicked out of here, but yes, I do. Oh,
2: no. Pumpkin <laughs> beer is is a specialty. We're, we're accepting a lot here of to be we're pumpkin beer. Well, they just uh, haven't found a good one. Yeah, I, I think, I think there are great. a
0: couple good ones, but most pumpkin beers, I just, I don't know why. It's kind of like when what do I, you think I, about I go kick? back every year thinking this could be the one. So, just stick with the Rumpkin from Avery. But that's really, that's is it beyond hoppy? pumpkin. Well, it's like 16% ABV. Ooh. Is it hoppy? No, not at all. No? It's, it's, well, I've everything for Avery a bit hoppy, one. but it's so, I had, it's, it's barrel aged rum. I've like, recently ooh. had a good
2: pumpkin
1: patch ale from Eddie Line Brewing. Ooh. That was a pretty good one.
2: Ooh. I really like the one at Platt Park. I think their pumpkin beer is fantastic.
0: But that's when they get into spices and it's really not pumpkin anymore.
2: It, it's that's that's in, definitional <laughs> inclusion, pumpkin spice, like that's
0: how the fall works. Y'all should listen to the John Oliver pumpkin spice latte from last week. It was really good. <laughs> okay. Right, so moving on.
2: So I'm Janelle. <laughs> uh, I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene and left that about five years ago. And I currently attend a evangelical Lutheran church and have a little house church And I am happy with the label of progressive Christian. Um, I think that really does sum up kind of where I'm at, especially with the social justice emphasis. Mm -hmm. And I make a pumpkin curry that I actually really get hungry for in the fall. So
3: wow, that sounds
2: Monday nights six thirty. Putting it in my calendar now.
0: That sounds good. Mm -hmm. So I grew up Southern Baptist Evangelical state of Texas. Deconstructed a lot of that throughout the years, and I remained pretty moderately open evangelical through most of my ministry career, gleaning from the Anabaptist, United Methodist, because I worked in the UMC for a while, the Pentecostal tradition, which uh, I was always like a reluctant charismatic. Somebody would say, "Oh, God told me this," and even today I'm like, "Man, well, really?" Even if like you know, I think God told me something, and then the. Uh, you know, the um, Jewish part of my faith is a big aspect of it. So first-century Judaism. So I've always been labeled in this podcast crew, at least, the uh, evolving Anabaptist method, Jew-Costal, follower of Jesus. But I've I got a pretty big open tent. And when it comes to fall, I gotta stick with beer. It's my favorite food. It's a food. Mm-hmm. Or just do tacos. I'm tacos year round.
2: Pumpkin tacos. Pumpkin tacos. Ooh. No. Like roasted that pumpkin disgusting. tacos roasted pumpkin with a little brown sugar <laughs> and a pineapple mango salsa Ooh, pumpkin taco just shell just a touch mm. of cabbage in there I was thinking roasted pumpkin with like pickled
1: cabbage and some cotilla cheese oh yeah mm-hmm.
0: P- people are going to stop mm-hmm? the show and go get some food right now <laughs> well, that's what I was going to suggest
3: Let's shut the podcast down Let's and go stop. out for
0: beer and
3: you know, Pot- tacos, tacos. <laughs> it's Tuesday <laughs>
0: All right, so uh, sounds good. So from the introduction, everybody got the, the notes. When it comes to interacting with the earth, do we choose conquering, as Katie asks, or caring? And are these two ideas in opposition to one another?
1: If I could start. Um, <laughs> the No, <kind> you <laughs> can't. Part of what I was thinking when I wrote this question was that um, that that verse that is referenced in the book of Genesis and the Bible um, that talks about God made heaven, the earth and everything on it. And God took the man and put him in garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Or that, that word is used. Um, the word used there is subdue. And I like wrestled with that for a while because that's not exactly how I view my relationship to the natural world and the earth and in light of my faith um and wondered you know kind of dug a little deeper and i think that that word subdue meaning like to bring under one's control one's power it doesn't say how to do that it doesn't give like an adverb there and it doesn't you know it doesn't say subdue with force with aggression with violence it just says subdue it, like bring it under power control. I think it's it's kind of up to us to to be responsible, respectful, caring, loving within that. Um, so that's kind of maybe how I interpreted that phrase, that term, subdue. Um, feel free to push back if you think that's not.
2: Well, so at our table when we we talked about subdue, we even talked about stewardship. In And um, one of our table members' comment was, okay, but that makes the assumption that it's ours.
0: Mm. Are we the dominant species?
2: Right, because the, the earth is its own organism, and uh, so is it ours to subdue? Um, and is that a right way to view our interaction with nature and with, with land in general?
1: I guess, does that come back to your spiritual perspective then of... Of what your particular lens tells you about whose it is,
0: probably. Yeah, with the Judeo-Christian framework, it obviously progresses toward humankind. So then yeah, I, I would say in that in that narrative, in that poem in Genesis, that the humans are in charge.
3: I think also the the aspect that men wrote it and men tend to view the need to subdue things sometimes more than interact with things, may have affected how people viewed that verse down through the years.
1: Hmm.
3: Absolutely. I mean, we're,
2: we're intimately hooked up into patriarchy and hierarchy when we're looking at any of this. We can't, we can't deny that those factors play into how this is written.
3: Yeah, I, I think just as traditional religion often had men subduing women and women were submissive, I think Sometimes that went into how we viewed the earth—that the earth should be submissive to us as
0: a species. Mm-hmm. I personally don't like the word conquering, although I know it plays into how history has played out. Caring—I like caring, but it could be that I—I I think I care about things and people, and those, those are pretty pretty opposite words. Though I mean, I and I know you, you chose them specifically, so. Why'd you choose those words conquering and caring?
1: I think it it did hearken back to to that phrase subdue the earth because I was so torn hearing that um, because and I also mentioned in the notes I think that a a judeo-christian well a Christian specifically view of that could be that, jesus calls his followers to participate in bringing this this idea of the kingdom into being um this idea of restoration and and renewing of all things and conquering the earth doesn't seem to be to fit within that vision and that mission that we're kind of given as as people who would say they were followers of christ um so I think that was where the caring part came in with with maybe we're called to be responsible in our subduing of the earth, our conquering, our, our bringing it in under our control. And then also like the idea of a farmer came up um, because when you think of, of cultivating land, you're creating an environment where things can grow. Um, and... If that's done in a in a way that is respectful and, and sus- causes the land to be able to sustain itself and to continue to grow and, and flourish, um, that can be more of a caring role as opposed to going in and taking and just leaving whatever's left.
0: And, and within gardening, you still have somebody who is in charge of tilling. Obviously, you're dependent upon what happens... With the rain and the sun, and but there's still somebody in charge of that process of, of the gardening and the farming. I mean, are we just in a, in a certain time in an era where we happen to be the ones who've evolved to the dominant species? Because before us, I mean, this all this goes Dinosaurs. this goes back this goes back to before humans. So I don't know where y'all stand on evolution, but our. <laughs> Assuming that a lot of our listeners probably do believe in evolution, macro. There's macro and micro. Are we are we it though, or after us is there something else beyond us? And are we getting too far off? Is this a rabbit trail? Do y'all want to go down that? Go. Okay. Because then th- that would that would take that specific story, at least in the, from the Judeo-Christian framework, and say it's it's not timeless and universal for all times. It's 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 a, this set, f- you know, for however many thousands of years. And then it's done then there's i don't know some kind of alien or a new dinosaur then then what is there ryan (laughs) what comes after us there are always things that have lived before us and well before this election i
3: I thought there might be something after us but now i'm not so sure (laughs) or or what we as humans evolve into and and what role we play i mean
2: so the the like the technical scientific answer to your question is ai AI is on the brink right now. It is happening, and it is going to happen in our lifetime, and we don't know what the consequence of AI is going to be. Uh, it could destroy us. It could take over. It could work in partnership with us. Um, but what they're finding is that um, sometimes when they're we're playing with AI, we find very quickly that it reflects us. And so what we're putting out there and what we're recording online and what we're giving it as feedback if we're not careful it's going to respond with the worst of what we have given it and i don't know what that means it doesn't sound real positive sometimes though
0: no I, i've talked to a an engineer about this who that you know they've got their their magazines and their websites and their Conferences that they go to, and he said, "It's true that that could happen, but it's not going to be in our lifetime, or probably the next generation. But it's still he was mistaken. Oh, he was. Well, at least I'm not going to mention his name on the podcast. Uh. (laughs) But yeah, we have we have jellyfish, we have AI, we have other aliens who can come and maybe maybe after we yeah, (laughs) who knows what's out there? We've all seen the movie Contact. No, no, we haven't. You haven't seen Contact.
1: I'll put it this on my is a list. homework
0: assignment for all people that we must see contact with Jodie Foster and the one and only, all right, all right, all right, Should Matthew we move McConaughey. Should <laughs> <laughs> it, That movie's relevant here. It is. So actually, before we move on to the next question or so, what was your upbringing like with this kind of, with, with that first question? Because we all grew up pretty conservatively.
3: And my my upbringing was influenced by the fact that I grew up in farming country, and my dad was a farmer most of his life, and and we grew up fundamentalists. So our idea of subdue the earth meant not to care for the earth, literally, because we were here to dominate it, to grow crops, to do whatever we could, because one day the earth would be destroyed, so it didn't matter at all how we treated it. And, and there are still a lot of people in those circles who believe that. So, so they don't inherently have a relationship with their land. It's a very mixed bag because farmers, more than anyone I know, are tied to their land and they feel part of it. I still feel part of the land, even though I'm just a farmer's daughter. But farmers from 40 years ago, 50 years ago, didn't think about saving the soil, before the, the Great Dust Bowl especially. And it's only been since then that farmers have realized that taking from the earth means they have to give back to the earth too. So it, it's, they're intertwined. They can't live without being a farmer. Farmers are farmers to their core. But old school farmers didn't often know how to take care of the earth.
1: I had a pretty similar experience growing up, um, also in a small farming community. I had family members who were farmers, but I also think it's interesting how disconnected I was from the land, even just living in a small town. Um, my my dad wasn't a farmer. My uncle, my grandpa were, um, are still today. And I think the the land is viewed in my family um, as as kind of a means to an end. Um, I wouldn't say that they don't take care of it because now we know about crop rotation and all of these different um, ways that you can get more out of the land. But I think it's still the focus is economic gain yeah, um, and, yeah. and subsistence of your family, you know, yeah. providing for your family. And I think um, there's also a lot of, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to disrespect the, the people in my life and, and other people who, who provide for their families by working the land, um, I think. Um, but also, there's, you know, that other side of things, like what are,
3: at what cost? I what, think if you, if you go to leading? Iowa or Nebraska and you see uh, the cost of it, when you look at um, how pigs are raised these days and and the intense waste product that... It's hard to dispose of. It makes the entire land ruined. And we're doing it to feed people like me who like bacon, but the cost is enormous. And you can't get away from the fact that we're killing the very land we love and, and that farmers love. I really do think farmers love their land, but it's only been the last couple generations of farmers that are changing the way they farm.
2: My parents were also, they were both raised on farms, and we were rural Michigan, but not on a farm, but we had um animals, we had chickens, geese, turkeys, ducks, rabbits from probably at least half of my childhood and we uh, processed our own meat and always had a garden, and we went camping all the time so like i can't I can't imagine. You know, disregarding that. Now, did we ever talk about it in a faith context? I don't remember that. Do you feel like you you gained a sense of your
1: relationship to the land through the faith that you were raised in? No, through that lens at all. Not
3: at all. I did. It just wasn't. It just wasn't connected. Wasn't a factor at all. Okay.
1: No. I don't think I did either.
0: Yeah, I don't want to sound disrespectful because I feel like often when we talk about. Our heritage and our background. Within every single podcast, we say, "I was this, now I'm this," and I'm very try to be very careful because there's so much about my upbringing, even to this day, that I, I hold dear. And my, my dad, my dad's a cattleman, has been for decades. So there's an awe, there's a reverence, there's a love for being outside and and just um, you know, I mean. <laughs> He, the, that guy is probably outside, I mean, more than anybody I know, even like out in the yard and taking care of his lawn and this and that and growing things and admiring trees and this, that's, that said, I don't, I don't know if there was ever a spiritual connection to taking care of the earth and maybe it was later, probably maybe college when you start studying some things and, and then take, and looking at like even scripture from a more progressive perspective as well and. How it's not it's not humans that are the ones that are supposed to subdue and conquer but and do as we please. But no, like we're supposed to interact, like you would use that I like that that verbiage earlier, interact and have this dance with the earth. It's beautiful and because it's it's the only thing we've got. I mean right, we've got water, we've got air, we've got soil, and if those things aren't functioning, then we're screwed.
1: What do you think brought you to that understanding?
3: What changed?
0: That's a good question.
3: <laughs> I, for me, I think the only thing that brought me to care about the earth was moving outside my faith tradition. Mm. There was nothing in even the more progressive churches that I started going to years ago that taught me to care for the earth. It was it was um, other religions that cared about the earth. Buddhism seems to, in my opinion, it seemed to care more about the earth than my my tradition I was raised in, and even things like Wiccan uh, beliefs. My daughter's a Wiccan, and they care much more about the earth than traditional Christians do. In what ways? I'm I'm not familiar, and I think
1: maybe a lot of our listeners might not we be familiar either. We have a podcast either. on that. <laughs> yeah, we're I,
0: professionals I, at the w- Wicology. Is <laughs>
3: <enough>? <laughs> I'm I'm probably Clearly. not the person to speak on it either, but. But Wiccans as a whole um, feel very tied to nature and at one with nature. And some people worship nature in the natural world. Other people just um, feel that it should be a part of their life more. But yeah, I'm probably not the person to.
2: <laughs> so, my, when I, we did that discussion a while ago, probably six months. Was that before summer? It's been a while. Yeah. So I walked away from that discussion feeling just, one, shocked at what I heard because it was not anything that you see in the movies or hear on TV or the threats that were made to us in apologetics class that we had to be careful not to get demon-possessed by studying Wicca.
0: Halloween's coming.
2: Yeah. It was really much more about having a relationship and honoring mother earth and yeah. learning from her and be being interrelated to her and recognizing the power of this organism that we live on. Um, and integrating that into your life and your practice, being outside and, and doing ritual in the outdoors. Um, it, it wasn't the scary thing that I had always been told it was. And maybe mm-hmm. there are people that combine, uh, true wicca with other things that make it look evil but at least the person that that we talked to and did our curriculum and who had practiced for a long time um it was much more about just being in tune with the the earth and the world and nature
1: one of the things that really resonated with me as i was writing this content was that so many faith traditions have that tie to the land and whether it's Mahayana monks who I, I don't know if they are in um in current times um encouraged to spend a significant period of time in the forest bef- and just really connecting with nature and um being alone in nature um before they reach enlightenment but also <laughs> Um, you know, Judeo-Christian monks, neo-monasticism, um, really focuses on our relationship to the land. And I mean, Jesus would go away to the wilderness and, and pray and, you know, do rituals. Right. And I think that so many spiritual traditions have this, this sense of finding solace, finding peace, finding restoration in the wilderness or in, in nature, in some context. Um, and I think that's really, I don't know, I, I guess it's its always really interesting to see the ties between all these different spiritual traditions,
2: ancient and and current. Well, and I wonder, I mean, like, what happened to Christianity? Because when we look at the narrative of Judaism, it's all outdoors. It's all outside. It's interactions with the land, whether it's in Egypt or in Canaan or in exile. Like, there's all this stuff that happens and is surrounded by the the land and the movement in the land and the movement of nature. And then we get into the new Testament and we see it in Christ and we see, we hear stories of travel, but it's almost like that emphasis on interacting with the world is not front and center at all. Like, what do you mean by interacting with the world? Well, like the interacting with
1: the natural world
3: is like not really there. And it became more about church buildings. You Look at the gorgeous church buildings in Europe Mm -hmm. and how how wonderful they are, but that's a whole different kind of worship than when you are in nature and worshiping the essence of creation or the creator or whatever you believe in. Right. I think just the whole uh, concept of these gorgeous churches took over more than involvement in the world
1: yeah one of the things that my group talked about last week when we did this discussion at at prost was uh did it start with the brick yeah like (laughs) was it technology that shifted these these ways of interacting with the land Um, instead of
3: being hunters and gatherers we settled down and we built brick homes and, and yeah
1: technology maybe even more today than than in the past you uses a large amount of natural
2: resources and divides us from nature like we talked a lot about just our cell phones and and the the, the it used to be we would just go outside and do something but now we're so lost in Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat that. We're not. We're not doing it. We we go to work. We spend eight or nine hours a day in front of a computer. We drive home in our car, and then we're indoors for the evening. And there's no space. There's no, uh, there's
3: no place for nature in many of our lives. I see that even more in my kids' generation because they are so on online and plugged in all the time that it's almost impossible to get my grown son and his friends to go out. The only thing that got them out in nature was Pokemon Go. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they were going around chasing Pokemon, but but they are so on their computers and gaming systems all the time that it's almost like they have no interaction with nature.
0: Yeah. I speak specifically from that Christian framework, going back to the Jewish story where you have an exodus there is, there are bricks and there, there's slavery and there's this sense of okay I'm going to free you from this and liberate you and then God takes them away from technology and working you know, 24-7 seven days a week and then they, there they are and he's like here's here's a new way to live but it's in the desert so it's really not a pretty land I mean I've, I've been there before it's it's depressing actually so you're leaving a, a lush Egypt by the river with all, all the things and you have beer at the end of the day at the end of your shift which is a good thing <laughs> And the Jews are complaining, like, oh, you know, we want to go back. Israelites are, they're grumbling. And it makes sense that they are, so then, you know, God gives them food. But then they leave this place, and then they go to the promised land, which we all know this story really well. But I heard somebody say, it was some kind of rabbinical understanding, saying that the promised land is the land of Israel. It's the land where, this is, this is God's people's land. But the desert, that's God's land. That's his home. And if you go there and you see the difference of, you know, the busyness, let's say you go to Jerusalem and you can just, it's just like going to New York city or, you know, downtown Denver. And you're like, it's just, you know, squirrel, I'm ADHD. So it's, you know, there's, there's, there's so many things, but if you're in the desert, there's, there's not that much to focus on, except for, man, I need water today. I need the community around me to help me get this water and maybe find something to eat. And and there's probably more of a respect for the land when you, when you are stripped from it, but then when you're when you're back in the promised land, then all we want to do is, you know, more bricks, more technology. We're so distractible. Yeah. Christianity had the desert father
3: tradition too of yeah. mm-hmm. of monastics who would walk away into the desert and mm-hmm. and try to live out there and focus on God and 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 it was just survival. I mean, it, surviving in the desert is hard, but you have to focus on the very basics if you're there. And I think it's. We'll probably get hate
2: mail for this, but I think it's fair to say the American experience of religion has been very much driven by church attendance, by revival, by numbers. Um, now, early, early on, that started with preachers going from different farm town to farm town to do that work. And so we were back in that discussion of farming. But, But really, the only people that probably experienced nature in terms of faith, were the circuit riders that were on their horses for days and days trying to get from one church to another. Um, But I can definitely see where we might have lost that in our traditions Um, because it just wasn't the focus of the American faith, Christian faith story. What should the place of nature be?
3: What should that look like? Ideally, the older I get, the more I think that that is the thing that humanity has to focus on if we're going to survive, because we are the only species that's ruining this planet. And what we're leaving for not only are the next generations, but other species. (laughs) It's it's horrible to think about and. I think all, um, I hope all religious people are starting to realize that this isn't just about the here and now and this isn't about converting people to our beliefs. There's nothing if we don't have a healthy earth. There's no other earth that we can go to. There's no other livable planet. So the older I get, the more prominent it is in in my life and its importance.
2: Well, I think a lot of... Um, scientists agree with you and then Stephen Hawking is has made clear declarations in the last couple of years saying if we're going to survive we need to get off planet and start creating new spaces to live in because there isn't going to be a place here new spaces to to, to ruin <laughs> well and maybe
0: unless maybe we...
2: that's it I mean because well when you I mean if you read science fiction at all like most stories where they talk about moving to a new planet includes terraforming and and the normal formula of that is basically destroying what's there to rebuild it into something that utilizes all of the pieces and all of the stuff that's there in its most you know efficient form so yes for humans to live on planets without oxygen we do have to change everything um and subdue it again or live in a very technologically driven environment, which is going to be metal and processed air and re recycled water and hydroponics. And that's all there's going to be. So it's, it's not a great story, um,
0: to think about what other places might look like. So if you had to pick between Star Trek, Waterworld (laughs) and Blade Runner, what would your favorite feature- Waterworld? Water I'm sorry. The the original. Uh-uh.
3: Wasn't it Kevin Costner in Waterworld? Yeah. Could yeah. I be on his boat? Because then I'd choose that
0: one. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered about yeah the uh, not Kevin Costner. I you know hey Kevin Costner. Hit, stick with the baseball mo- movies, Kevin. Love you, Kevin. Waterworld.
2: Kevin, who's listening?
1: Hey Kevin.
0: <laughs> if you're
2: listening, we'd love to do a podcast episode with you. But like
0: so, so you talked about like the the metal, the technology. So Blade I I think of Blade Runner as like, you know, it's obviously it's a stretch. All these are stretches. Maybe. But which one would would you would you pick if you could pick one? Which metaphor picture of, of reality would be most appealing?
3: Waterworld because water is life.
2: I mean, I like the appeal of truck because um, you have the way it's portrayed you have equalized society and gotten rid of a lot of the divisions that we're struggling with intensely right now and everybody has food and water and clothing and a house and they're taken care of Um, and they have jobs to do and things to keep them occupied but everyone is taken care of and I really like that vision of what that can mean and I think Interacting with other species in ways that are powerful and peaceful, and not never not everybody's peaceful, of course. But trying to make a bigger community, a collaboration of different species, and to create something better, I really think that's okay. But Kirk or Picard, Picard, (laughs) Kirk, (laughs) Shatner.
0: You've not really watched a lot of Star Trek, have you? Yeah, shut up. Oh. All right. So going back to these ancient uh, traditions and these religions, I mean, Katie, you, you've got quite a bit here on the notes, and you can you um, well, we could talk about Taoist and Buddhist and Australian Aboriginals, but yeah, looking at uh, from that because I you know all I have is my Judeo-Christian framework. There are other frameworks obviously out there, and then looking at where we differ today and how do we get back to the the rootedness of a religion that was at one one point about sustaining interacting interdependent how do we get these religious traditions back to their roots because that's what it means to be radical it's rooted even if you've left religion behind and you're no longer religious you could still have a voice here
2: (laughs) i think that one of one of the things that came up in our discussion was about capitalism and empire and that the the interplay between capitalism and empire and then here in the question we have an economy of manufacturing and materialism. Like, as long as that is our focus as a society and as a culture, um, and honestly, if we're being brutally honest about Christianity in America, it is an an integrated part of many Christian practices and experiences. We're going to have to let go of some of that and maybe live simpler lives or less um, extravagant lives. And by the way, if you're in the upper middle class, you live extravagantly compared to the rest of the world. If you can choose between Android and iPhone, you live extravagantly. If you can choose between steak, chicken, and pork regularly, you live extravagantly. And we totally lose sight of that. And I'm as guilty as anyone else. But I, I think we have to one recognize like the position that we're in in America so far up to this point and that this capitalism, this drive to have more, to spend more, to get more like that is affecting our religion and it's affecting our practices. And until we can start to pull those things apart, change is going to be really difficult.
1: I think we're even, I mean, we're even isolated from each other socially, you know, um, technology and, and other factors contribute to just a breakdown of relationships. Can, can we like go back to our roots and be connected with the land if we're, we can't even connect with the people around us that we're the closest to?
3: Um, I don't know. I, You're saying disconnection runs a lot further than just the land it's it's a part of our society as a whole
2: yeah. well today so for example i don't know how many of our listeners live in big cities but i met with a friend on the bottom of denver and to get back to my house before i came here i was in the car for about an hour and 15 minutes now that was in rush hour which is my dumb planning totally my fault but um really from, from where I am now to my home is like maybe 10 miles, even at night, it'll take me 20 minutes. So, I mean, I think that that's one of the realities, like as we become more urban, as we're living as populations that are overwhelming the locations we live, like that, when we left a church that we had started at here in Denver, some of my best friends live on the ring on the outside of the city and it's really hard to maintain a relationship when it's 45 minutes to an hour to see somebody and you have to fit that into the rest of your life and then they have to fit it into their life and it it's really hard it's really hard to have that connection that you want to have because technology is literally in the way
3: and i think that's an important point because you said that we are all becoming urbanized very few people live on farms anymore in the 1940s the vast majority of americans were involved in farm work and now very few people are we live in cities and it's going to be more that way in the future so how how do we stay dis, or how do we stay connected to the land and the earth when we live in a city and we we live with smog and we have a little square patch of grass that we call our own which isn't really my own because the land rights on
2: my mortgage say that i only own about 30 feet deep of my land and if they wanted to they could come mine my little tiny space around my my house god like seriously we're that greedy but you still
0: have to take care of it i do i know Mm. Mm. (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, that going so back to Indian. how we get religion back, you guys, you three, right. go to church regularly. Do your churches ever talk about this? Do they ever talk about Christianity's role in taking Mine care does. of this? Yes, I yeah, have, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Huh. I do. You think that's unusual? I don't. I don't think most churches do. But I maybe think it would have been unusual.
0: 10 to 20 years ago okay but I think today it's just be- and because of social media because of technology people are more aware and, and even I think conservative churches are moderately conservative are waking up to talk about climate change and stewardship oh wait and- that doesn't exist
3: <laughs> Hashtag yeah. big so, news. So actually,
0: actually, moderately conservative churches can talk about climate change without talking about global warming, and but you can still talk about your responsibility. And I think that if anything, if in that scene I've taught, I've argued with people before, like you said, those who say that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you can say, hey, can we just all agree that taking care of the earth is actually a good thing, regardless if this is true or not? If ninety right. something percent of scientists are right, right? Which the, I w- I want to side with them because I'm not a scientist. But let's say they're wrong. It's still not a bad thing to take care of the earth. So I think you're seeing more of that of, yeah, it's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's a good progress then.
2: And it's also, I mean, we need to acknowledge we live in Denver and I go to an extremely liberal church. And I don't know about you guys, but I mean, we're probably not the norm in terms of like the center of Christianity in in america um so i don't know how much of that's filtering down i will say though it definitely this much at least in a lot of evangelical circles they're doing stuff with charity water and so like water projects are really a thing right now and that's some awareness
3: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. i mean i kind of think of like like smaller to like house churches like grassroots movements and And communities that really do, you know, we have our local, the table community um, who focuses even in the neighborhood of Platte Park on on community gardening and on reconnecting with the land and on how how people can use, you know, that 30 feet that they have and utilize that to produce
2: sustenance. They they don't want my 30 feet. (laughs) Mine won't grow anything, but... (laughs) (laughs)
1: But I think,
2: uh, yeah, I think there's,
1: there's division within even like evangelical Christianity on like how important this issue is. Um, And I think there are pockets of people who really see the importance and see um, living out their faith as, as being um, good
3: stewards in, in, in every aspect of what that means. On the other hand, I had a conversation with somebody just this last week who ha- had thought somehow that the world was going to end. There was this big apocalyptic thing that a lot of people believed in, a lot of um, a certain type of Christian believed in. And he was excited that the earth was going to be destroyed and that they were out of here. And And there's still so many people who believe that, that why take care of something that's just going to be blown up in the end, because their interpretation of revelations is different than, say, mine is.
0: I was living in Dominica, and my first week there, I was at a church service visiting, and a pastor, I'm not going to mention the name, was talking about, oh, these liberals today, talking about global warming. And he starts going on his rant, and I'm looking at Lauren, and there's not many people there. He goes global warming. It was global cooling back in my day. Does it really matter anyway? Because, you know, the whole world's gonna blow up anyway, and God's gonna take us out of here. And i this is the last time I went to any of that guy's services. Mm-hmm. But here we are in this beautiful country in the Caribbean, and somebody has the audacity to make that kind of a statement around a bunch of medical students as well. To which people like, why didn't we all just get up and walk out? Mm-hmm. But but that's true. So that and I maybe like we're we're sort of blinded. Janelle and Katie and I, I mean, because you asked the question, because we live in Denver and I would assume most churches in major cities say, yeah, we should take care of the earth and, you know, maybe look at climate change and what we can do about that and what, but perhaps we are in the minority when it comes to Christians. So the person that I'm referring to and the one that you're referring to, that might be the majority. Mm -hmm. And how do you get through to that person? I don't know. The fact that we're
1: having this conversation on this podcast, right? Like that puts us in the minority of most Christians i would assume
3: on the other hand i have i have two brothers who are still fundamentalist christians but they're very deeply into care of the earth and i've never figured out how how they do that because they do believe the earth is going to blow up soon and <laughs> but they also are very um into planting native species and taking care of the land they have so Even in the fundamentalist world, there's still pockets of people who care, but I just I just know enough people who don't. Maybe I'm cynical.
0: I remember when I saw the inconvenient truth, and I got laughed at. Al Gore. There's a new one. There's the sequel. The Inconvenient Truth, The too? Inconvenient the Incon- no. <laughs> Truth. Uh Inconvenient
2: that Truth. That's closer to the,
0: the more inconvenient truth. The most truth. inconvenient truth.
3: An even more inconvenient well, truth than the last. Life is inconvenient on many <laughs> levels. It's ironic, too, that you were on a Caribbean nation, and all those island nations are losing land yearly because of global warming. I met a, a guy from man, I cannot remember the the island, but it was one of the islands in Southeast Asia. And he was talking about how their government has plans to move all of the residents of that nation off their island within 100 years, because it won't be there. Because most of the island is already under sea level. And (laughs) These are plans that islands already have in place. So to doubt global warming when your country is going to be more affected than most—that's just.
1: I mean, this is happening in the U.S. too. I mean, in near New Orleans, there are communities in Miami Beach. Yep, Mm -hmm. yep, that are going to have to completely relocate. Yep.
0: Yeah. So what's our part in this? Is those who are like Janelle had said earlier, the the privileged? You know, we're middle upper class, and we have the decision to buy an Android or, or an iPhone. Miller Light or Avery?
2: Avery? <laughs> I see exactly.
0: <laughs> do, you, yeah, do you guys ever feel that it's I mean there's whi- I feel a white male guilt a lot, and but then there's just the, the American guilt at times as well.
3: The level of consumerism mm-hmm. we all have, it, it's even if we're trying to recycle and trying to do the right thing, the level of crap we buy and dispose of is sickening. I'm, I'm very guilty and of that. It's,
2: it's hard. Like, so I've read a lot about simplicity and decluttering and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm a highly creative person. And so my, my uh, surroundings would probably drive Ryan, Ryan crazy most of the time. Cause I'm not a neat Nick. I don't, and not everything has a place in my house. Um, And so I've had to really work on, yeah, Rob's like turning purple. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Rob, I'm not a cleanie. Um, But, you know, so I have felt that so much because it's so easy to like get just a little bit more and then everything goes to chaos and you try to clean it. But then for me, what I find is I'm so busy just doing all the things and being present and... For, for many many years it was doing ministry that the priority of me taking care of my space and being intentional about not overusing and over having there's never time to like sort it all out because I've got to take care of all these other things and and I think that that is a is a real struggle that I've read a lot about with a lot of people. We want to do better at this we want to consume less. we want to utilize everything that we have, but we're just, Too busy and finding time to like sort it all out and find a place for everything so that next time I need it, I know where it is. Like that takes energy and thoughtfulness, and you can't sit down and watch Netflix for three hours and you can't go through the news feed for an hour, spend three hours on Facebook. Like you've got to get away from that stuff and like intentionally go and do this activity. And if you're already exhausted and tired, or you've been thinking hard all day on the computer, like. I, I think that we've created a, a culture where it, it's really hard sometimes to like break away and do those things because I'm already exhausted. exhausted.
1: Mm-hmm. It's more socially acceptable to be busy, for sure. Absolutely,
2: mm-hmm.
3: I'm going to stay home so and declutter. Yeah, deeply this, ingrained in us. This conversation brought back a memory of we had an Eastern European guest in our house when my kids were little, and because I'm a book geek and books are important to me, we had a zillion books for our children to read. And this man um, was reading one of the books to the children for a, a nighttime story. And at the end of the book, he looked around at, I would say, 50 books scattered around the room. And he said to my little kids, do you know how rich you are? And it was like a sucker punch to my gut, because I felt like we were struggling financially at the time but we looked so rich to this man from East Europe talk about guilt <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: yeah and i hear that from my from missionary friends they come home and they're just like completely overwhelmed for sometimes even months because there's just so many choices. like i just want to go buy a box of cereal I don't need a whole aisle. Mm-hmm. I, I just need like three choices mm-hmm. and that that just becomes so overwhelming.
0: Yeah. All this resonates. And Rob, by the way, just entered the room for those who are listening. And we're not going to put you on the spot, Rob, but Rob and I did live with each other, our families in Dominica. And because we lived simply there and we, we came with a couple of suitcases. And then when we got there, the house was furnished with like a, a bed who knows what was on that bed and that mattress and the couch and a chair and you know you got some silverware but then yeah you got the grocery store and there's really not much there so going I remember going back home for the first time and went going to a church service and looking at the lights and the amount of money that was spent on a church service and i was I was pretty disgusted i did I had to uh, I had to walk out. It was one of those moments where I can't, I can't even I can't even worship here right now, and then just going and then you go to restaurants. I mean, believe me, I missed American food. There's nothing like American food. We would vacation to St. Lucia because the food was like American food over there. Jump on a ferry, but you know it, it's it's just it's so overwhelming. So then you know here I am. I, I, I I'm back in the states. I've been back in the states for I don't know how many years now, and you just get kind of used to the American life again. And then you look back. Because of all the devastation that has happened in Dominica, that's been on my heart, been on my mind, and now they, a country that had hardly anything now has nothing, and people are—they're trying to survive, you know, drink water, find bread. And here we are still complaining about, you know, oh, they don't have whatever at the grocery store. So, lots of guilt, lots of—I um, don't know—it's it's, almost—it's almost to the point where it's so numbing to where you have to you have to bury that to to just to kind of go from day to day. Uh, But, but, but you know, then I've got kids who've got shitty diapers and then I look at, Oh man, look at the landfills. Look at the amount of diapers I'm changing every single day. So my, what, so then I I remember when we got, we finally got our second car. That was hard for me because we, we were a no car family. Then we were a one car family for the longest time. No, we had a kid and then a second kid and, you know, I'm like, we got to get a second car. So it had to be a Nissan Leaf because at least we could plug it in, and I felt better about myself at the end of the day. So ugly though. <laughs> it's not an ugly car. The it's Nissan such Leaf. an ugly car. Well, so, so Lauren, like a true consumer. Lauren uses it Yo. to commute to work back Tesla, and
2: forth. Tesla baby. Yeah. I'm gonna do my part someday.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I drive around a Jeep Grand Cherokee, and I do all the driving. Not Lauren. She just goes to and from five, you know, five miles here, five miles there. I don't know. what I'm I'm rambling right now saying all this, but I don't know, I mean, honestly, what the answer would be except for perhaps it is a just every now and then wake up and consume less, take a walk. When I take a walk, I'm more in touch with myself and I feel like God and if, if I'm walking with Lauren, like there's more of a connection there versus sitting inside watching TV. But we're so conditioned to be inside and so conditioned to not take walks and to just like let's just consume. Let's go. Let's go buy more stuff.
2: So maybe Bruce Theology should do a th- like a thirty day challenge. Maybe we'll put something out on the website or on Facebook, and maybe challenge ourselves to consume less in the next month as we get ready for the most materialistic thing on the face of the oh, planet. That would be good. Um, or think about as you are prepping if you're people that do not buy presents seven or eight months ahead. Um, What might look different about your Christmas celebrations, your holiday celebrations, that would take into account nature and consuming less and having less, but still being able to celebrate?
0: So should we not go buy a real Christmas tree? Oh.
3: Well, uh, that's, a,
2: that's a double-edged sword, <laughs> yeah, man.
3: Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a whole podcast there.
2: <laughs> because, I mean... Be- I mean, many of those places are sustainably harvested, so they're planted for that purpose to do that, and that does bring bring the outdoors indoors, but at the same time, yeah, you're right.
0: You're still Uh, cutting down a tree.
2: I mean, the Amazon just went carbon positive for the first time, so we're kind of screwed anyway.
3: (laughs) Okay, but we've talked a lot about negatives, but you also see glimmers of hope when you uh, in the news this week, they talked about a type of rice that can grow in salt water, which would be good for our uh, world. It would be good for hungry people. They can they don't have to have fresh water to. I mean, it's just so good. They, they talk about hydroponics and new ways of farming, um, vertical farming instead of soil farming. And even in Iowa, I know um, some female farmers who are. Uh, working on organic farms and turning, ev- turning even the bigger farmers into more organic. So technology can screw us, but technology can also save us if we let it, and if we if we not let because let is passive. If we make technology work for us, yeah. <sighs> I just like deep in my gut, it's just
1: it's worth the fight, you know. It's, I mean, even, even those little everyday choices of fighting the, the Netflix urge and going outside, um, I think that all of those little steps that we can take to just change our, our daily behaviors to be more cognizant of what's around us, the people around us, that the, the earth around us, the small creatures who live in Denver, you know, <laughs> like the, you know, everything that's going on around us and, uh,
2: I'm rambling now. Well, so let's 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 issue a challenge. Here's a challenge: if you've listened through this podcast and put up with us through all of this, I challenge you to take whatever screen time. I pick one thing this week in the coming week, and I want you to delete that screen time and replace it with something in nature. Mm, that's good. So for you, that might be 15 minutes. It could be three hours. But I want you to pick a specific time when you would be doing something with a screen and turn it off and go do something in nature. Or here I will give you a caveat. I'll give you one caveat. If you really can't stand bugs <laughs> and or it's raining, you can go to a museum and and learn a nature museum and learn about nature that way. Challenge accepted? That's a good one. All
0: right. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Cheers.